What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com. Today, I have special guest Carolina Cartier on, and we are going to dive into all things hormonal, female, uh, high-fat, ketogenic diet, all those things. She had suffered from PCOS for several years, hadn't had a cycle for 16 years, and she was able to reverse all of that with a well-formulated, high-fat, ketogenic diet. She also lost 200 pounds in the process, might I add. So I really enjoy this conversation. She's got a ton of information coming at you. If you are pregnant, trying to get pregnant, nursing, just wanting to lose weight and be healthy, any of the above, all of the above, you're going to benefit from this podcast. I hope you learn a ton. I hope you enjoy. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and listen to Carolina Cartier. Carolina, we're live. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for making the time. I missed all this craziness going on right now. It is definitely unexpected, but um, the good news is I have more time at home to do things like this. Yeah, yeah. It's a good, good time to just double down on productivity and lay a foundation. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of, you and I met for the first time at the Metabolic Health Summit, um, and then Kim Howerton uh, gave me some insight into your backstory, and then when she was telling me the stuff that she was telling me, I'm like, okay, I got to get her on here because I feel like you have a very unique story and one that is very, I feel like there's probably people that can relate with it, but the story doesn't get told near enough. So I'd love to hear kind of what got you into the keto space, first of all, and then we can kind of flesh out what you're doing with that motivation, where you're taking things going forward. Yeah. So my story, it goes back pretty far, but I'll, I'll try to make it quick. Um, but I had been diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome or ovary syndrome, PCOS, back when I was 13 years old. Uh, and this was in the 90s. Um, and at the time, uh, the treatment was the same as now, which is here are some birth control pills to regulate a cycle. Here's some metformin and come back if you ever want to have kids, mm-hmm. um, which is not a great treatment protocol. Um, there was nothing dietary um, involved in that. So time went on. Um, I did not enjoy metformin. I did not take that. Um, I ended up not taking the other birth control pills either. And I just gained weight pretty much uncontrollably, um, which is really common. We see that in PCOS where it's uh, easy to gain weight, very difficult to lose weight, even though you think you're doing everything right. Um, In my early 20s, I, for the first time, started paying attention to my diet and fell into the Weston A. Price style of eating, which is all about food quality. Um, It's kind of similar to paleo of grass-fed meats. And if you're going to have grains, you know, have sprouted rice or sprouted lentils or things like that. Um, And I felt really great about the quality of what I was eating, that I was getting a lot of nutrients, but I still couldn't lose weight. And of course, with PCOS, in my case, um, I had the, the classic kind where I had no cycle at all. So time keeps marching on and we end up at 16 years of me having no cycle, full PCOS, um, weight gain. It was just uncontrollable. Um, at my, I'm six feet tall and at my highest recorded weight at the doctor, I was pushing 400 pounds. I was around 380 something. And I remember telling myself as we do, well, you know, at least I'm not over 400, right? Mm -hmm. And usually people will all hear this, well, I'm not quite over 200. I'm in Wonderland, but, but I'm, I'm kind of close. And for me, that was the 400 pound mark. Um, 
So I just kind of kept declining. My health was declining. Um, I would try all sorts of crazy restrictive diets where I knew I was counting calories. There were a lot of rice cakes involved and I just couldn't lose weight. Um, and I finally went to a naturopathic doctor who for the first time in my life tested my insulin levels. So I'd had my A1C and my blood sugar tested plenty and I was fine. My blood pressure was fine even though I was you know, morbidly obese. But they said, you're healthy, just eat less. Um, and so this natural path tested my insulin along with other things, and it was through the roof. Um, it was at 70, uh, I forget the units there, micro units. Um, and we generally want to see it at least below 10. I think Dr. Fung likes to see it below 5, and mine was at 70. So wow. way, way out of range. And what we know now, that means that my pancreas was working overtime um, based upon the amount of carbohydrate or glucose that was coming in. And so this naturopathic doctor said, hey, maybe you should look at reducing your sugar and your overall carbohydrate. And I'm thinking, oh, well, that seems easy enough. And I ran with it. I had never even heard of this as a thing, um, which now it seems naive. So this was almost six years ago that I, I've been keto now. And I ran with it and it has been life-changing. I ended up losing 200 pounds. Um, I ended up, uh, while I was still obese, um, only four months in, three or four months into keto, I started ovulating and having a normal cycle. And that was after 20, 20 years, you said? 16 years. And within three months, all of a sudden, my hormones started functioning again. And all of a sudden, I, you know, I was dropping weight effortlessly. For the first time, I wasn't starving all day. And at the time, six years ago, um, there really wasn't a ton of guidance out there. We didn't have the Facebook groups, the books, the subreddits, um, Diet Doctor, all everything's out here. These podcasts didn't exist um, back then. I think there, Jimmy Moore had just written his book, the first mm -hmm. book, um, and that was pretty much it. Maybe a couple of websites, and the prevailing methodology at that point was high fat keto it is low carb high fat right lchf and that's what it was and i said well i like this i'm gonna go with it and it was amazing i mean for the first time i really felt satisfied at a meal um i didn't have as i mean there were immediate mental clarity kind of benefits um i had been diagnosed with major depressive disorder and that diagnosis was lifted six months after keto, um, we, it was officially lifted. Anxiety reduced, obviously my hormones were improved because um, I had started cycling and I ended up <clears throat> conceiving twins. So I have uh, twin boys that are now two and a half years old and I conceived them while following keto. I maintained a, you know, a low carb ketogenic diet during pregnancy, after pregnancy. And it didn't take long after about a year of following the diet and the lifestyle and it was just so simplistic after years of complicated diets um, I decided I wanted to change careers and leave finance I was in financial operations um, so leaving that world and I decided I wanted to go into nutrition and so that's been my focus the last couple years uh, and I will be graduating in June with a master's in nutrition so just a couple months from now I love it I love it I want to I want to dive into a couple of different things here um, so 
when you were right before you switched over to keto and you were doing the the calorie counting you had a high you know 70 insulin mark and your your intake of glucose and carbohydrates is through the roof what was like a typical day of of eating like then like do you have any idea what your calories were at, at that point I don't know my calories at all. I can say that I was hungry. Um, so, well, it depends. So going, depends where we go. I had strict calorie counting before I went to Weston A. Price. Mm-hmm. So in the calorie counting, they kept telling me to reduce my calories. They said at first it was 1,500 or 1,600 was what I had been told to follow. And I was doing all of the prepackaged meals like lean cuisine and rice cakes and those kinds of things. And so I'm fairly positive I was on track with the recommendations that they were making from just a calorie standpoint. They didn't care about how much protein I had. They didn't care about anything else. It was just this many calories. Mm-hmm. And then I would try to follow that, but I, I was starving. I mean, I just was, you know, that hangry feeling all the time. And I was eating every two to three hours because they said eat, you know, frequent small meals. We've all heard this before. It'll rev up your metabolism. It'll stop you from overeating. Um, But really, I was just hungry all the time. I never felt satisfied. Um, And I was sitting there waiting until I can have my next little snack because I couldn't focus on anything else. I was just so hungry. So um, I did that. And again, I'm six feet tall. So um, having 15 or 1600 calories should be a deficit for me. If I'm 300 some odd pounds, that should have been a caloric deficit for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, I'm told that I was wrong in my counting that I didn't add things correctly, or I was secretly eating and, and under reporting. Um, I've been told all sorts of things, but I, I know, you know, I worked in finance. Numbers were my thing. I love spreadsheets. I'm super nerdy that way. Uh, and I, I definitely kept track of everything and it just wasn't working. And I, knowing what I know now, I think that's composition of the diet. Um, after all of that, and I switched to kind of a Weston A. Price style. So I went from like lean cuisine and whatever it was, um, seed oils, none of that mattered. And I had switched then over to Weston A. Price. And I wasn't calorie counting at that point, but my weight just didn't change. So I'm, if I were to guess, I would say that I increased my calories going on Weston A. Price, but my weight stayed the same. And and with the Weston A. Price, that, that's pretty much like you said, like a paleo approach. I'm not super familiar with that, but it's uh, mm. basically just the whole foods, prioritizing whole foods and, yes. and nutrient density foods, but not really much thought given to the macronutrient distribution of those foods, right? Exactly. So um, instead of going back to kind of Paleolithic times, Weston A. Price was a a dentist um, who kind of went around in the 1930s and looked at what cultures that were free of disease were eating, which was a lot of, you know, wild game or sprouted uh, rice or things, you know, things like that. Um, And then, you know, no refined sugar. They weren't drinking sugar sweetened beverages, but they might have honey. So really looking at the natural style or from the earth style foods that were being consumed so no seed oils and then they didn't have his his reason for going around was trying to figure out why do americans have so many cavities in their teeth mm-hmm. and so that was his motivation he said hey not only do these other cultures not have cavities but they also don't have heart attacks or diabetes or those kinds of things um you know, they were starting from a healthy place i was definitely not and i thought okay this is this is going to be it this is going to be what saves me uh, because I really wanted to be healthy and I wanted to feel good and I wanted to be active and I just couldn't do it 
and I didn't realize that my diet was what was holding me back. Yeah, it truly is amazing what uh, that that pro- proper macronutrient ratio can do for you. I, w- I really want to talk on you doing traditional keto, which, like you said, was the high fat, you know, moderate protein, low carb. That's kind of like what a lot of people that are introduced to keto here initially. And there's there's been so many people that have had tremendous success with that from a weight loss standpoint. Yet there's this weird like phenomenon now in which people just assume that like the high protein version of keto has gotten incredibly popular at the demise of the higher fat version. And I don't have anything against the high protein, but I feel like it, it's this weird shift has occurred within the keto circles that suggests that high fat is no longer relevant. But there's that's that's proven to not be the case for you, obviously. Right. And and you and I have watched the shift happen um, and some pretty prominent people who were you know, very much for dietary fat, um, feel that the evidence changed. And so they changed their stance. And I believe that was with good intention. Um, However, I don't think the evidence supports that high fat would be detrimental in any way. And I think you and I agree, in many cases, it is beneficial, not only if you're trying to lose weight, but especially for hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's partly where, you know, the losing weight piece comes from. I mean, I was hangry. I was like, give me food. I can't wait. I need to eat now. Um, And when I went high fat, all of a sudden, I could eat three meals a day and be okay. I didn't need six or seven or eight you know, little snacks throughout the day. And um, there's a lot to be said there. And we know the argument where it comes to just calories in versus calories out versus the hormone model. I mean, this is going to go on forever. And it isn't that calories are irrelevant, but it's more that I don't think we really have an accurate measure of calories out mm-hmm. and even necessarily all of the calories in, Um, you know, what we consume isn't necessarily, there's all these pieces, right? There's the thermogenic piece of the food. um, There's what's going on in the body. Are you building something like a human? Are you pregnant, right? You're going to metabolize things differently. Um, And there's that calories in piece, but then what goes out? I mean, are you efficient? Do you have a very efficient metabolism where you are not going to waste any energy and therefore In that case, you might gain weight at a certain level versus someone else eating the exact same thing, exact same activity could have a wasteful metabolism where they're producing a lot of heat and wasting energy, wasting calories, and that person might maintain or lose weight. And we see these cases and there's just so much we don't know on an individual basis and so much of our history and our hormone health and our environment plays a role into how we metabolize our food that I don't know we can accurately say, you know, down to uh, 10 calories a day, this is what you need. And for those of us who have maintained our weights for years with how is it that we, you know, somewhat magically can eat the exact amount of calories that we need, no more, no less, and our weight is perfectly stable. And I think that there's variability there that we don't account for if we stick too closely to just calories in, calories out, instead of looking at the effects of our food, the nutrients of our food, um, improvements in our just everyday health, like what's happening there, what's being built, what's being broken down. So all of that changes our energy needs. 
Totally, totally agree. There's there's so much more to the equation than just calories or just hormones or just genetics. Like you have to look at it from a holistic standpoint and take all these factors into consideration uh, to the best of your ability. I feel like you know we we don't have a very accurate way to to know with any degree of certainty what the caloric expenditure is. There's just calculators. There's just estimators, and people take these these calculators, you know, as the word of God. They just live and die by them. Uh, without really tapping into what their body feedback is telling them, uh, which is which is frustrating for sure. But from like a, a dietary fat standpoint and its impact on hormones, like I've, I've it's interesting because I feel like you and I are uh, you know different in the spectrum, but we both are very so dialed in with regard to how our body's responding to the dietary fat in like a real time feedback scenario. Because like with you. Uh, you know, having the PCOS and having all of that's in, that impact from a hormonal standpoint with me doing bodybuilding and being at a very low body fat and having kind of real-time feedback from a hormonal standpoint there, both you and I have a very good pulse on what our body is doing with, you know, fats and how we're responding uh, to that fat. And if you if you optimize the fat that you ch- you're taking in, it's going to have so much more of a positive impact than what you could possibly achieve in a deficit of dietary fat and if you just look at fat as energy source and not from a hormonal standpoint i feel like you're missing a huge piece of that puzzle i couldn't agree more and i you know i've heard you say in the in the bodybuilding world that uh, some of them will have just really low testosterone because they go so low fat um, for a competition and their hormones just are not where they should be and i see the same thing for women when we look at just women with PCOS, not all of them are overweight. And some estimates say it's about 50-50 as far as normal or underweight, um, that category, and then versus overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. And so we have a large chunk of, of women who are normal weight. Um, and I've even seen, you know, low visceral fat scores. So they're, they're not you know, skinny fat, as we call it, there isn't a central adiposity. Um, They don't seem to have an an incredibly low fat threshold. Everything appears normal. And yet they meet the diagnostic criteria for PCOS. They either aren't cycling or they have really low progesterone and higher testosterone, which is, it's kind of that, you know, opposite effect, testosterone wise, men and women, when we have um, issues there. And we see this in normal weight women, even you know, I see that. Um, we have some studies, they start with an overweight population, and then they say, okay, how can we reduce weight with whatever intervention and see if it's restored? And what happens there is they say, oh, there's really no difference in dietary composition. You know, if we control this in a lab or give them pre-made meals, we can, in a lot of cases, make them lose a certain amount of weight, but it doesn't necessarily result in optimal hormone profiles. It doesn't necessarily result in pregnancy if that was their goal and their hope. And so um, looking at health um, and how your diet plays a role in that health overall, more than just weight, Um, we know that you can be slender or even muscular and not necessarily healthy from an overall hormone and metabolic standpoint. Totally and completely agree. I feel like I would be remiss in not asking at this point. Uh, we're, we're talking about fat, so I don't want to get off the, the, the topic of dietary fat. But as it relates to women specifically and hormones, I feel like another trend that I've seen you know, really start to gain momentum is this concept and idea that women 
especially women that are like not having the period, you know, not they're they have amenorrhea, they're not having a normal cycle. They're convinced that that is because they do not have carbohydrates and they have, you know, played around with introducing carbohydrates. I've had a few different guests on the podcast who have talked about this at length. I have my opinion of it for sure, but I'd love to kind of hear your take on that and if there's any validity in that point. Yes. So I, I've heard this discussed as well. And I know um, some some people in the space are kind of adding that timed carbohydrate bump and they're doing something with like a whole food, not, you know, a Snickers bar, but they're, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it's a sweet potato or something. And they're adding that at certain times in their cycle. So I have heard of this and something I I'm very aware of and careful um, when I'm speaking is that I don't ever want to invalidate something someone is saying. If someone says this happens to them and this makes them feel better, um, I want to believe what they're saying because I've been there. I've been on the receiving end of someone telling me what I did didn't work. And I'm saying, no, it did. I, this is what happened and this is what I did to fix it. And, and this happened to me. Um, so what I typically see, um, is, is that that is not usually the case. So I haven't run into something, I mean, maybe a few people like a little bit more carbohydrate more because they prefer it, but I haven't seen anyone starting with a cycle that, um, and then it going away once they go low carb. Mm-hmm. Right. Usually when when I'm working with someone or a woman comes to me and they have you know, an issue, they already don't have a cycle. And we start looking at carbohydrate control, depending on where they are, looking at their tolerance, where are their insulin levels and their glucose levels and all those kinds of things. So usually the first step is removing things from the diet or altering the diet from, you know, controlling carbohydrate. So I haven't seen that as a common problem now that's not to say that it couldn't be for some um but you know even in the the carnivore space uh, which i am not carnivore i do eat low starch vegetable and fruit um but even in that space i'm not seeing a lot of complaints or posts about women losing their cycle so i have heard it um from a few but I think it's just going to depend. And again, it's going to be what makes you feel optimal. Now, maybe um, it's a combination of factors. I have seen um, some people who are fasting, maybe that's more than what's necessary for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love fasting and I follow inter- intermittent fasting regularly and occasionally an extended fast. Um, but I... My bigger concern, I honestly think, is if you were doing a lower fat version of low carb, um, that perhaps you could see some disturbances there. Um, but more often than not, if you are getting adequate fat, you know, we have our essential fats, and if you're getting adequate protein, um, then usually it's fine. I would say I haven't seen that as a major issue. But that would be interesting to see if more people come forward because I'm curious what they're composition is what's their version of, of keto or low carb that they're following yeah i totally agree i mean i've seen like if there's females that are incredibly lean you know when they when they cross a certain threshold uh mm-hmm. from a compositional standpoint they get below a certain body fat then it is normal to lose their cycle there 
now maintaining that lower body fat percentage isn't necessarily normal so i don't recommend or advocate for that but mm-hmm. when they are that like in a competitor standpoint i can see that however i see a lot of people uh, having disruptive cycles or irregular cycles seemingly more as a result of under eating overall and also not taking in enough dietary fat like i i have not mm-hmm. seen any instances in which a female was consuming or had a regular cycle had a normal cycle switched over to a well-formulated higher dietary fat version of a ketogenic diet and was eating ample calories and Mm. saw a disruption in their cycle. I feel like that, I've not encountered that. I feel like I've seen people that have gotten lean enough and have lost their cycle. I've I've encountered people that weren't eating enough calories or weren't eating enough total dietary fat, but I've never seen anybody that was eating enough, was at a sustainable body fat percentage and was eating enough dietary fat and had any adverse effects whatsoever. Yes. And that's that's a good point, because, again, you're going to see a lot of lean, athletic um, people, whereas in my space, it's usually more either overweight or normal weight. And I don't tend to see as many people who are are underweight. Um, So I wouldn't see that problem as often. But that is an excellent point. And I bring that up uh, for women who are following low carb and breastfeeding. I say the same thing. Like this is not the time to try to eat super low calorie, you know, eat what you need to eat to nourish yourself, nourish your child. um, And it seems to always work out. Um, And the first thing, if someone says my supply is dipping, I kind of have my quick hit list of, you know, are you hydrated and getting electrolytes, especially if you, if you recently started transitioning. So if, if someone's already breastfeeding, I say, you know, let's let's do this kind of slowly over a couple of weeks um, just because milk supply um, is different for everyone. And so any sudden change can cause problems, kind of whatever you're changing. Totally. Yeah. So I ask them, are you hydrated, getting enough electrolytes? Are you eating enough in general? Are you feeling satisfied at your meals and you're including enough dietary fat? Um, because that's how you're going to produce milk. Um, and there's kind of this it runs through the breastfeeding community that you need carbohydrate to create milk as well. Um, but you really don't. It usually comes down to hydration and enough calories. Um, and there are plenty of women in the space, myself included, who breastfed on a low carb diet. So, um, and again, not to say that if you're struggling, that means something is wrong, right? It's very common to have issues in general. And so it's really my goal to say, how can we support you? And here are you know, tricks that we have found or tips or things that work for everyone. And like you're saying, it's it as long as they are eating adequate fat and calories, um, I really don't see that carbohydrate is the driver in the in their hormone cycle, right? Their menstrual cycle. Agree. Now there there is a, another segment. It's funny how all these keto circles are sub mm-hmm. subdivided here, but a lot of the, you know, proponents for the higher fat version of keto have kind of garnished this fear of protein, which I obviously don't think is is right either. You need to have adequate protein. Um, so you being an advocate for higher fat and having all the benefits that you've you know experienced with the higher fat, what is your philosophy and take on protein amounts, especially as it relates to uh, females that may be going through some hormonal irregularities or females that are trying to get pregnant uh, or nursing? Just kind of what, what is your overall take on protein in that regard? Yes. So I've gone around and around on this, and this has been, you know, discussed for years in the keto community at various conferences. Um, I remember big talks about it at Low Carb Breckenridge in 2017. Um, 
so I'm obviously we need enough amino acids there are essential amino acids and we need enough of those so that that's good but I don't necessarily think that the minimum is always the best it's the same with fat just because there's a minimum number doesn't mean that that's optimal mm-hmm. um, I for someone who is eating a ketogenic diet that includes animal protein I just think it's hard to not enough I guess if your carbs are low, you know, and you're, I, I, I make a meal with an animal protein um, and some sort of like fatty sauce or cook it in, in a fat and then add a low starch vegetable. And by eating that way, I seem to just always end up having enough protein. Now, again, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm not performing. I'm not going for any particular physique. I have had DEXA scans um, and I've been able to maintain my lean mass through this, this whole process. Um, so uh, it's, it's hard to say. Now, what I will say is that in, in the context of a mixed diet, so for someone who's eating lots of carbohydrate, um, kind of the standard American diet, right? They're having higher fat uh, or moderate fat, high carbohydrate, and then some moderate amount of protein in studies that are done on on that population we do see that protein will have um, an effect on blood glucose and then require insulin and we there's been studies on people who have type 1 diabetes and they have to um, dose with insulin after eating protein in that mixed diet environment and then even tests done on people without diabetes but that is a very different metabolic state than being in ketosis um, to being fat adapted. And in those situations, it doesn't appear that protein raises glucose if you're already insulin sensitive, or maybe it does, but because you're not having carbohydrate, you can easily handle that, right? So I'm not concerned. That's where it seems to come from, right? And I think it was because so many people with type 2 diabetes were coming from a high carb diet and they probably were having a response to protein and i don't doubt that um i know some people are wearing continuous glucose monitors and they have seen a spike in that in their glucose levels after a protein rich meal and i think as you get more and more adapted you become more efficient at burning free fatty acids um, you become more insulin sensitive i think um, any negative impact of, of protein on glucose seems to go away. It seems to dissolve or you just become more efficient. Yeah. So I'm, I would be more concerned with insufficient amino acids than I would be about a small rise in glucose from eating the steak. Yeah, and honestly, that's another kind of feather in the hat, so to speak, for higher fat. Because if you're eating a ketogenic-based diet, with a higher fat protocol, that fat is going to help slow the absorption uh, of that protein. So it's going to fuel you for longer, and it's not going to result in near the spike in glucose insulin that it would if it was a very lean protein in the absence of dietary fat. Right. And there's, you know, there's questions to, I've heard it debated whether gluconeogenesis is the proposed mechanism of how you would eat protein, and then you would have a rise in your glucose via that protein driving gluconeogenesis. And then uh, many people have said, no, there's no driving. It's all demand-based. So as long as you have um, enough fuel in the form of ketones, then gluconeogenesis wouldn't occur from protein. It's debated. It's argued. um, So I don't know your stance on that. Yeah, I I don't know. It's interesting because 
it's like every year the uh, the, the topics of debate these conferences shifts and changes. One year it's mm-hmm. high protein, one year it's high fat, one year it's metabolic flexibility and introducing carbs. So it's yeah. interesting to see where it all plays out. As far as gluconeogenesis itself is concerned, I feel like it, a lot of it is demand-driven, but, I mean, a lot of it is the individual sensitivity to these different macronutrients too. Like if someone has not been adapted for very long and they have like a very high bolus of protein, they're not going to be able to really shuttle that and use it properly. Whereas if mm-hmm. someone's been adapted for years and years and their body's you know, well adapted to using proteins and fats as the primary fuel source, then they can get away with a lot more, so to speak. Right. And uh, there's there's two pieces there, two things, is that one, we know that our body adapts to the diet that we're eating to some degree. So transporters change all the time. So if you're eating a certain amount of protein, pick a number, and then you all of a sudden, um, and you ate that way for a year, and then you all of a sudden double that amount of protein, your body will not have the necessary transporters in place to absorb all of that protein. And we see this when someone suddenly goes carnivore, there tends to be some digestive issues there where a lot of it is flushing through them. And that doesn't mean that they, you know, over time they tend to adapt and they can absorb more protein and they can process more. And that's kind of true for a lot of things. And that's, and unfortunately in in the case of carbohydrate as well, right? We have this where we just absorb more and more and more until we reach this limit of we can no longer take in anymore um, and we start seeing metabolic um, problems from that. But in the case of protein or fat, um, we often will upregulate transporters once we start eating more of it. Um, we start producing more bile for more fat. We start producing more transporters for amino acids. And we are able to adapt to that new diet. It just that's part of the adaptation phase, not only um becoming keto adapted and utilizing ketones for fuel, but also just whatever you're eating, we adapt. So there's, there's that piece. So, you know, if you're, if you're worried about protein and you need to take a couple of weeks, um, to ramp up, you can always do that. I'd rather you take a couple weeks to make the change than never make the change at all. Um, and then something I brought up, uh, it was at Low Carb Seattle. And I brought this up, they were talking about, uh, I think it was Dr. Naaman and he was saying how, gluconeogenesis is only demand driven or, or mostly demand driven. And I asked the question and I said, well, you know, what about glucocorticoids, which is uh, cortisol. And one of cortisol's main jobs is to drive gluconeogenesis. That's how it kind of wakes you up and it gives you energy. And that's part of the fight or flight. And that's, it's all part of that. And in our society nowadays, we're living under higher, longer uh, stress conditions, right? That chronic stress. And that's also a driver um, of gluconeogenesis. And so for people who are concerned just from the dietary perspective, I'd say, well, why don't we add in some stress management tips or if it's meditation or yoga or walks or whatever you're allowed to do in our, our COVID-19 environment um, to help mitigate some of that stress and then, Hey, eat your protein. Um, Cause then we can uh, balance out that concern over glucose. And then over time, as you adapt and you become more efficient, it's less of a concern. Totally agree. I mean, one thing that I've taken a lot of consideration to lately is just the the stress state that I'm in while I'm consuming a meal. Like if I'm in a fight or flight, uh, you know, sympathetic state, then 
I'm I'm going to not absorb those those nutrients near as well as if I'm in a relaxed state. And that is something that I used to pay no attention to whatsoever. I would just eat on the go as I was able. And now I've really taken it a point to to slow down, mind my breathing, and actually relax myself, my body and my mind before I ever sit down to eat a meal. Yes. And, you know, I would add that I would view nutrient deficiencies as another form of chronic stress on the body that's going to cause problems. And we have our fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, K. And if you're eating, you know, insufficient fat, um, whatever that number will be, which is largely debated, but if it's not enough for you to get the nutrients that you need, that's another thing that's causing low level stress on the body that is just going to hinder whatever your goal is, right, as far as health goes, Um, because this chronic low-level stress that we have in all these different forms is not helping. Totally agree. You had mentioned something earlier about how you are not carnivore. You have a, you know, a solid protein fat, and then you throw in a a non or low-starchy vegetable. There's been a lot of talk as of recently regarding the anti-nutrients in vegetation, and I'd be keen to get your take on that. Yes. So I am an avid listener to Dr. Saladino's podcast. Um, So I I listen to that a lot. He's insanely intelligent. I mean, I'm listening to this thinking, how does he remember all of these studies that he's read? Mine can all blur together. Um, So and also Dr. Sean Baker. So I, I listen to both of them a lot. And oh, I'm on the fence. So a lot of these it's funny because there is some truth to it. So a lot of the proposed benefits of phytonutrients or phytochemicals is this hormetic response where um, the body doesn't, it thinks it's a toxin and we respond by increasing our, our own antioxidant production, Mm -hmm. um, usually glutathione. So that's how a lot of these plant molecules work. And we say, Oh, it's good for us because it increases our antioxidant level. And we usually say it's the antioxidant in the food, but it's not, it's that it's um, perceived as a, as a toxin. Um, and that's that hormetic effect. And you have a similar effect if you take, um, you know, an ice bath or if you're in a sauna or any of these kind of effects where it's a, a low level short-term stress, um, not the chronic stress. In that case, it can increase our antioxidants. So I agree there. As, far as toxic goes, you know, I, I'm on the camp that if you can tolerate it and you enjoy it, then, then feel free to consume it. Um, if it's causing you problems though, if there's something that you're like, man, uh, I feel really bad whenever I eat this, but I've been told I have to eat it. Um, I think that maybe you shouldn't be eating that. And so I think it really needs to be individualized. Um, and it's just hard to say that there's not a ton. Now that I've I've gone through a research thesis, my stance and my uh, kind of black and white view on things has changed a lot. There's a lot of gray that I didn't realize existed until I did my own research thesis, until I realized how hard it is to really come to a conclusion. I've done my statistical analyses and, and how do you determine this? And humans are complicated. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to any plants that you want to eat, I think a lot of them can be benign for a lot of people. Um, If you're having obviously an allergy, that's going to be a concern. If you're having some sort of intolerance, um, see if there's another source of whatever you're looking for, you know. Um, In my case, I really don't 
go for specific nutrients out of plants too much. I tend to go for, for the nutrients out of animal products. Um, they're just more bioavailable. They're typically more abundant. I also consume organ meat, so that's not an issue for me. I eat liver. I eat um, also sardines and oysters and things from the sea. And so I'm not concerned about nutrient deficiency if I were to cut out plants. Um, I've done some detailed analysis and I get everything. Um, but again, if it doesn't make you feel good, I mean, that's the goal, right? So if your goal is to be healthy and functional and have all of these things, but then you get this pain every time you eat this food and this bloat from whatever's happening, then I say, don't eat that, right? It hurts when I do this, doc. Well, don't do that. I totally 100% completely um, agree. I feel like that is, is the exact same stance that I have on the matter. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with having the the vegetables if, if you don't have any ill effects especially if you're you know getting quality sources of vegetables like you don't want to get a bunch of you know mm -hmm. pesticide sprayed stuff but if you're especially if you're yeah. growing them yourself and you're mindful and you know you know from start to finish what they've gone through and the whole procedure i feel like that's a good way to hedge your bets i don't necessarily think that i'm getting any inherent benefit from them maybe i'm getting a you know an adverse effect very in the slightest degree compounded over time, but I don't think I eat enough for it to have an adverse effect on me personally. Um, do you find that there's anything whatsoever that you would benefit from getting from a vegetation source that you would not be able to get uh, inadequate quantities from a meat-based source? Well, there's there's the few that are discussed. Um, gosh, it's debated about vitamin C. How much do we need? How much do we not need? Again, I consume liver um, and, and other sources from uh, seafood that have vitamin C, but I also really like uh, broccoli and Brussels sprouts, with, which have that um, red bell peppers. So I'm not, I could probably get enough, depending on what we consider enough, um, from animal foods, but I do also get them from plants. Thankfully, I like, I like the plants that contain them. Mm -hmm. um, and then a big one for pregnancy. So I, I do think about this one is folate. Um, that's a, a big concern. And so the window, if you become pregnant, the critical window for folate when it comes to fetal development is in the first two weeks of pregnancy. And this is usually before you would know that you're pregnant. So um, you ovulate and then two weeks later you have the missed period and you say, oh, I'm pregnant. Well, that critical window has just passed where you needed to have adequate folate stores um, to properly form the neural tube um, of that baby. Uh, so in utero. And so that is one I am very aware of. Um, you can get it from animal foods. Again, liver is a great source um, for that. And, and there's uh, low levels in muscle meat as well. And it, it's all over. Um, but another source from plants are dark leafy greens. So I would say depending on what you're eating, if you're following you know, the ribeye only diet and you're looking at pregnancy, that may be a case where supplementation would benefit you um, or making sure you're including enough organ meats to get enough folate. That's one I'm really aware of. Um, but overall, I'm just not too concerned. Most of our, you know, the ones that, the vitamins that tend to be low um, across the board 
uh, vitamins and minerals. So iron is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, we are largely iron deficient as a population. Um, and I, I like to bring this up. A lot of times, even if you're getting enough iron, but you have anemia, which happens, you're like, I'm eating enough iron, but I have anemia. Um, oftentimes you can be copper deficient. Mm, yep. Um, and, you know, that copper is used to transport ferritin, um, our storage iron around the body. And so if you are not eating forms, uh, uh, forms of food that have copper, and again, liver is a great source, um, then you could be copper deficient. And I'm not saying to necessarily go supplement. I would really caution against um, too much mineral supplementation, especially if you don't know your status, because you can cause um, some toxicity as well. Uh, but if your diet is low in copper, then you could be like, I'm eating all this steak, but I still have anemia. That can be one of the reasons. So that's low across the board. Um, but then vitamin D, that's also in animal foods. So um, I see a lot of people really deficient in like iodine if they're not getting mm -hmm. adequate like seafood. Yes, that's a good point. So thank you. Um, I do see a lot of women uh, with infertility who also have hypothyroidism um, or they're unaware and they have their iodine tested, um, which it's very difficult to test. So usually we just look at thyroid function. So I guess they're having their thyroid function tested and they're borderline low. Um, yes. Yeah, so if you are not using iodized salt, which I actually don't, um, but I get plenty of seafood. And so being aware of your iodine status is also important. Um, and it really is going to depend on what you're eating. And I, it's funny because I have been told so many times that a ketogenic diet is so restrictive. And I think, well, no, it isn't. I mean, I eat so much variety of animal foods. Um, I mean, I could make also just a different meal, same cut of meat and make 10 different meals with that. Um, so I think of it as not restrictive at all until, well, that's how I keto because I eat seafood. I eat, um, I eat pork, I eat chicken, I eat beef, I eat everything. Um, I really, if it is an animal <laughs> or animal based, then I'm fine consuming it. So for me, it's not restrictive at, at all. But I do see people following keto and literally just having chicken and broccoli. Um, and that's where I start to get concerned. Not only are you likely not getting enough dietary fat, um, but you're also likely becoming deficient on certain nutrients because it's just not varied. Um, and I think of a ketogenic diet as having the opportunity to be quite varied, quite colorful, if that's something you might, not that I go by color, but as far as tastes and different foods, um, it can be quite mixed. Um, we're really just taking, you know, the, the breading out of the equation. Totally agree. I feel like, I mean, anybody, I've, I've never once in my entire keto journey felt that I didn't have options out there as far as mm -hmm. food's concerned. Um, so, what about with regard to like you mentioned chicken and broccoli? Like there are people that have a a aversion to red meat, especially um, for whatever reason when they get pregnant, they 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 have certain food aversions, and oftentimes that is with red meat. So what would you offer as a suggestion there? Yes, yeah, so I uh, typically recommend um, that. If you're recently pregnant, if if you're in my group, my Facebook group, and they say, "I just found out I'm pregnant. Can I still continue keto?" The first thing I say after congratulations is to find a bread substitute that you like to be a carrier for other sources of protein. And what's nice about um, 
a substitute is usually they're egg based. So mm -hmm. um, it's a different way to consume eggs. You're getting tons of nutrients and, uh, you know, a good amount of protein that way on a couple of slices. But then you can also put other things on it. Um, so you're not just having to have a steak. And there are versions. Now, I'll say I was keto a couple years before becoming pregnant, and I didn't have too much of a problem. Um, I didn't have a lot of nausea. I didn't have a lot of aversions. I don't know if I was just lucky. That's possible. Um, but I do see that often. Um, and it's, it's real. Pregnancy nausea is definitely real. So I recommend getting some sort of bread substitute that you enjoy making that's good for you. I personally love um, pork panko, those, uh, it's like ground up pork mm -hmm. grinds. I've made breads with, and then whatever you want to put on it that works for you. Because then you're getting protein from the egg, which is complete protein. Then you're getting collagen from pork rinds if you're adding that to it. Um, if you're someone who likes protein powders, you can put that in the bread. I tend to stay away from protein powders too much, um, but in a short-term window where you're just trying to address nausea and you need to eat something protein-based, then you know I say go for it. Um, and then you can top it with, like I topped mine with cream cheese. Um, sometimes I did a nut butter uh, and I was able to get plenty of protein um, if I just really wasn't into having a steak or having a pork chop or something along those lines. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to figure out what your specific bread recipe is here with the panko. Is it like a one, like one cup per one egg or enlighten me? Cause I'm probably going to make this and I'm not even pregnant. Okay. Yeah. I, gosh, I don't even know my exact recipe. I'd have to get it to you. I had posted it, um, but there's a lot of versions out there and I, I search for recipes constantly. So I will say I'm not a recipe follower. I usually change every recipe <laughs> and mostly because my, my meals are usually just a protein and a vegetable with some fat or, you know, so it's really simple. I don't need a recipe. Mm -hmm. but yes, it was um, pretty much just egg and pork rinds. Um, there are versions out there where you actually blend up meat into a bread as well, kind of these carnivore breads. Um, but um, I think the one I had settled on that was really good was either um, cream cheese or sour cream along with egg and along with some pork rinds. And you can also make it as a waffle, which they call a puffle. Oh, <laughs> so wow. it's kind of like that <laughs> cheese egg waffle thing. Yeah. Um, and there are so many different versions out there, um, depending on what you want to use. And I like that because um, we definitely... <laughs> overall as a society get less collagen um, than we probably need and that goes back to the glycine and methionine ratios of muscle meat versus collagen and all of that um, but uh, so I'm not concerned about having a bunch of collagen in conjunction with egg because the egg is still a complete protein mm -hmm. so in that case you're just getting you know some glycine and some of the other harder to come by amino acids which is great so I really like pork panko um, I've been using that for several years. I use it as a breading often uh, or just, you know, crispies on top of my salmon or anything. So I, that is probably one of my favorite ingredients that I purchase that, you know, from a company um, because I don't use a lot of specific ingredients. I mostly have, you know, produce and, and meat. I go to the butcher, I go to the produce section and I'm done. So, uh, but I do get, I do get the pork rinds. Very nice. I like it. I like it. I'm going to have to, I have to try that recipe for sure. I'm, I'm after finishing my contest prep. I'm all about experimenting with the new flavors yeah. and textures, so that'll be a good one. 
Well, that's what's nice is that I like things where you can change it up um, mm. and it seems weird, but you can make the same recipe and just add cinnamon or add, if you use sweeteners, you can add sweetener and make a sweet version. It seems weird, but it, it works. Um, I made a lemon version. It was like a lemon pound cake out of that. So uh, depending on what you want, or you can just keep it savory and do, you know, chives and sour cream or whatever you want. It's the same base recipe. So I like that. Um it's somewhere, I think I have it on my fridge, so <laughs> I have to go get it. But I do things like that where I make the same thing and I keep it simple. Uh, and when it comes to, I think, sustainability of any dietary plan or any, really anything you're following, if it's simple, then you're more likely to stick to it. If it's complicated and it takes a lot of your time and a lot of thought, in general, most people are less likely to stick with it long term. Um, and so for me, it's like, okay, I have my couple of go to's and I'm able to keep it varied just by keeping it simple, which seems, totally you know, it's agree. like more complicated would actually stall me. So totally agree. You haven't talked too much about dairy. You, you mentioned putting the, uh, the cream cheese in that, but is like dairy as a whole, is that something that you tend to kind of moderate or is it just an individual basis? So this, that's another big debate, especially in the fertility space. Um, I see a lot of people posting that they'll say dairy causes inflammation and dairy reduces fertility. And from a research perspective, that's, I would say, not supported, especially, it depends where you are, obviously, and in the, in the quality that you're getting. Um, but studies done in Europe usually show that dairy consumption um, increases longevity, and it's great for overall health. Um, and in the US, it tends to be more muddied. But I think that that from what I've seen, study-wise, it seems more based upon other dietary factors or the combination of dietary factors. So, you know, if you're having, um, we blame the cheese on the burger while you're having French fries and a Coke kind mm -hmm. of thing, right? Yeah. It's the same as the, the, the meat itself, but you're having French fries and a Coke. And, and what are we going to blame here? Or what are we going to say could be the problem? So I have not seen clear evidence that dairy would hinder fertility. Um, I did see a recent study came out showing that dairy in, uh, it was in the U.S., did not cause inflammation. Um, so they said it was not associated with increased inflammation. And I'll say I like high-fat dairy. <laughs> I do like cheese. Um, I do like heavy cream. I do like sour cream. Um, so I do consume those. I don't actually know nowadays how much I'm consuming, um, but I think overall, it probably is less than your average American diet, um, simply because I I eat more simply, yeah. right? Um, and if I have, I, I literally use a shot glass to measure cream for my coffee, so I know it's one ounce. Mm -hmm. So I know I have one ounce of cream, um, and then I may have you know, one slice of cheese on a taco kind of thing. I made uh, sardine tacos. I posted those the other day. Uh, that's my version of fish tacos. And I had a slice of cheese on, on each one of those. Um, so I still consume it because I like it. But again, if you feel like it's not doing your body good, <laughs> if you feel bloated after consuming it and, and it was the addition of that, nothing else changed in the meal, then I would say maybe cut it out again and see if you feel better. I have seen several people say they feel better with less dairy. Um, so I'm going to believe them. I just know for me, it didn't seem to make a difference. I did cut out dairy um, at, in 
at the end of my third trimester while pregnant because uh, a dairy allergy or dairy intolerance is very common for causing gas in infants. And uh-huh. so I was going to be breastfeeding and I said, oh, okay, I'm going to cut it out a couple months early. And I really saw no change in my personal health. Um, I breastfed without having dairy for a couple of months and then I added it back and there was no change for them. They didn't seem to have any issues or gas related to dairy uh, for the twins. So I continue to enjoy it. Um, I feel like I dairy will say, yeah, is kind of one that of way. those hereditary based things where like depending on your lineage and genealogy that, that may have a, a large impact uh, based off of like where you've you know, like where your family line has grown up, basically like what kind of foods they were consuming um, from an ancestral standpoint. I feel like dairy can have an implication there. But I, I personally as well don't notice any adverse effects. I, I mm-hmm. try to incorporate more, you know, goat-based over, you know, cattle-based, uh, cow-based. But I feel I feel like honestly in the grand scheme of things, I don't, I don't have any crazy right. adverse effects. And I do purchase, I like... Um... I do like goat cheese, Chev. I do also purchase raw cheese, um, mm-hmm. which in the U.S. has to be aged. Um, so it's it's not pasteurized, but it's then aged. Um, and um, for the children, they do have some milk, so versus cream, um, that I will mix into some of their, their foods. Um, and for them, I purchase A2 milk. So I don't know if you've discussed the, the A2 protein versus A1 protein, but um, in Europe, A2 is the predominant um, casein, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, protein that's in milk. And they seem to have less a- reported adverse effects to dairy. And it's kind of more the ancient protein. And then in the U.S., our cows kind of switched over. We went to the more volume producing and we ended up with more A1. Um, and for a lot of people, that seems to be a contributing factor. So for the children, I do purchase a2 milk and for me i look for raw cheese when i can um but i do still have cream um but again we're looking it's so high fat it's lower protein and that may be part of the problem you know or you know for some people if they're consuming um more of the lactose the sugar in milk more of the proteins in milk and less of the fat maybe that's what they're reacting to and i think it's going to come down to like you said your your individual basis it could be a genetic factor it could be a digestive issue um so do what feels right you know, do it, you don't make yourself sick and don't force something if it doesn't make you feel good. That's I think that's rule number one when you're eating. Yeah, totally. Where do you find this A2 milk? So for me, I can get it at Costco. Um, they sell uh, half, so I guess it's one and a half gallons, a three pack of that. Um, actually, all the grocery stores around me have it. So right now it's a big, um, if you get the whole milk, it's a red half gallon cardboard car- carton. Um, so that's where I get mine, um, is Costco, but I can get individual versions anywhere, um, right now. And I would guess it's, it's, I think it's across the U S but you might just have to look for it. It is more expensive, but they use it sparingly. Mm -hmm. Um, I pour a little bit of it maybe over some raspberries or something. And that's, that's a dessert to them, a little bit of milk with berries. So, uh, so I, I use it sparingly. Um, but that's, that is the milk I get for them. And I don't know how long, because they don't even drink milk by the glass at all. So I don't know if we'll continue 
using it much in the future. Um, but I do feel better purchasing that. And again, it's more when we see these differences in populations and in research, I think it's really important to look at those individual uh, nuances. And we see country by country, sometimes we'll have different results to a, a similar study and it's going, well, what's happening? I thought it was the same, but really the ingredients were different. And I think it's the same for keto. You know, if you're reacting to, you brought up vegetables, let's say you're getting something that's heavily sprayed versus something that was just picked by your local farmer, you may react really differently. Um, so if you can get something that you enjoy that's of better quality, um, then I say go for that. And that part of that's that Weston A. Price background for me too, is like, if I can get the quality that I'm going to. Um, totally. But if you can't and you can find another way that works for you, then do that too. Yeah, 100% agree. I feel like a lot of people use, you know, the the cost standpoint of keto and the, the higher quality foods as like a, a scapegoat to not do keto. But I mean, do what you can afford and make the most of that and, you know, prioritize that whenever possible. But don't let that be a, you know, factor that hangs you up by any means. And I really like um, Dr. Westman. He, you know, I kind of had a little bit of that dogmatic you know, must be the highest quality everything when I started. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was trying so hard to improve my fertility. I desperately wanted to have children. And I said, I'm going to do this, you know, perfectly. And it kind of consumed my life for a little bit while I while I figured out where can I get quality sources. And that's where I think easing into things can really help. Um, if you switch over one thing at a time, find a source of something you like. Um, we actually use that A2 milk to make yogurt um, as well. And so uh, my boys really liked that. And that makes it lower carb because the bacteria are eating, eating away at that lactose. So switching over over time, if you want to, and if that's a concern for you, I think can help. Um, and I think the quality will matter. But Dr. Westman brings up and I've, I've met him um, briefly at numerous conferences. And I love his attitude of, you know, I'd rather them do any sort of change to improve their health. You know, if, if perfection is going to stall you and make you procrastinate, then don't worry about being perfect. And we don't need to be. Um, any sort of change in your diet away from heavily processed, sugary, carby food is going to be of benefit. And um, I have been known to get a quarter pound burger patty from McDonald's. It has happened. Um, I tend to, I would say 99% of the time I cook at home. Mm -hmm. um, but there were a few long trips and that was the option. And, you know, it did not make me gain 50 pounds and I was nourished for the day and then back to normal once we got to our destination. So, um, yeah, I think in the that, end, it's making huge. it work, making it sustainable, making it uh, I mean, having just like a little break in the norm, if that gives you something to, to you know, break up the monotony of it. But then you're back to a solid baseline. As long as the baseline itself is moving in the right direction, I feel like you're making massive progress. Right. And, you know, kind of going back to that carb cycling, you know, some people are using it um, as a targeted approach. So they may have a performance goal or they may have a certain any goal that they're trying to reach and they're doing it for a reason. My concern when I when I see this start to you know proliferate through the online communities is that a lot of people and I would say probably most people who are are coming to keto from a diet perspective are doing so because they want to lose weight um, I would say that's probably the most common that I see at least and 
when they're starting out, especially when they say, oh, I can follow cyclical keto and I'll just, you know, once or twice a week, just kind of go off the rails and have anything where it's a very slippery slope. (laughs) And um, you might say, I'm just going to have a bite, but it turns into a meal and then it turns into a day and then it turns into a week. Um, So having some time where I'm again, not saying perfection, but finding what's going to work for you that you can maintain at a certain level versus this kind of yo-yoing up and down, um, especially if you're not familiar with low carb, because it does take some time to also mentally, I think, adapt to what am I eating and am I, am I cooking? Um, I, I'm shocked now seeing, you know, that we're all homebound, how many people will eat out two or sometimes three times a day that they're ordering food. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm thinking, man, I, it really hasn't affected my household because we always cook. And thankfully our grocery stores have been fully stocked. We haven't had an issue. Um, But I was like, man, I still haven't, I haven't ordered anything at all through all the apps because I always cook at home. But um, years ago I didn't. And I think back to, man, I was that, person who would pick up lunch at, or breakfast at the office usually go out to lunch and then pick up something with my husband for dinner and there were there weeks where I mostly ate out so uh, yeah, that, yeah that is not that is not a good trend in my opinion I mean like you you want to be able to have you want to be able to be independent when you when you just stretch back everything all the layers that like that's what it boils down to like if you mm-hmm are relying on an outside source to provide all of your food. You don't know what that food is made up of. You don't know where it's come from. And you are completely dependent on outside factors. Whereas if you're cooking all your own food, I mean, shoot, most of the food that I eat is food that I've killed. Uh, and I'm cooking it all. So like or my, mm-hmm. my wife's cooking it all, I guess has to say. Um, so having that just independence, I think that's going to lead to overall better health and just well-being at the end of the day. Um, I'd love to dive into to what you have on the horizon because you've got some some pretty exciting things in the works right now. Yes. So, um, like I said, in, in a few months here, I'm in my final quarter of graduate school um, for a master's in nutrition. Uh, and I went the research track. M- most of my classmates are going to go on to a year of internships to be a registered dietitian. Um, but I did the research thesis uh, in the hopes of getting into a PhD program. So that has not yet happened. I did uh, pull a few people aside at, at um, the Metabolic Health Summit asking if there were any vacancies and trying to get in. Um, but in the short term, kind of before I can find or, or you know, when I land that position, I'm working on uh, a series of videos and it's a, a course called My Fertility Bootcamp. Uh, and the idea is that I'm seeing so many women and they join my Facebook group and there's just a lack of knowledge of their bodies, a lack of knowledge of their cycle. Um, we just don't have a, a readily available source of kind of the things we spoke about. What nutrients do I really need? Things like folate, you know, you want to make sure you have adequate folate before you're pregnant, um, all this information. And so not only their own bodies, um, if you have a cycle, but it's irregular, if you um, need to establish a cycle, um, if you're looking to get pregnant or avoid pregnancy and all these kinds of things related to fertility and how diet plays a role in all of that. So 
I'm working on this video course. And, and like you said, with time home, I've been able to become much more productive. Um, no commuting saves me a couple hours a day. So I've uh, been working on getting that launched. And I had planned to launch it a couple years ago. And then I had children and learned uh, that parenthood is, is definitely that full-time job. I think I was pretty naive before that happened. So I bet your content will be even better, yeah. though, now that you've had the children because it'll be so much, like, hands-on experience you've gained. Yes. And so, I yeah, I have been through it. I've been through, you know, restoring my fertility. And I, I like to say that, honestly, I if I can restore my fertility, I think that – a lot of other women can as well. I had a pretty severe case, um, 16 years of anovulation. Um, I joke, I'm like, who starts the period at 29? Well, I do, you know, <laughs> that's just not common. Um, and it was just a very severe case and, um, but it was able to be reversed and the body is amazing. It can recover from a lot of things if that's what you want. And even if pregnancy is not your goal and you're just wanting to have optimal hormones and you're wanting to be able to have a predictable cycle, um, which is definitely uh, makes it a lot easier on you, um, then that's going to be all part of it as well. I think on to, to go live. I think that is, is going to be hugely advantageous because I feel like there's a massive gap in the information flow around that topic specifically. And so many of the medical recommendations that are out there currently are founded on, you know, zero nutritional fact i mean it's all just hearsay and so much of that hearsay is honestly inaccurate so having that as a resource i think will be massively advantageous to so many females yes i hope so i just i feel this i was in that group of that preconception group that didn't know what to do and i kind of fumbled along and figured it out and um, switched careers and did all of this massive amount of work because i couldn't get uh, clear instructions. Um, and I, I still see that now of women going to their doctor and they're not coming out with a plan or understanding of what needs to be done. So I'm hoping to kind of fill that gap and make it easier. You know, it doesn't, it was pretty hard for me, but I, I did learn a lot in the process. And so hopefully we can provide some help to other people and, and make it a, a smoother transition. And and where do people go? And so I know it's not live yet, but where will people mm -hmm. go or how, how can people... Uh, yeah, so my and... Facebook group and Instagram is Keto Babies. So one word, K-E-T-O, babies. Uh, and so I will post it there for sure <laughs> um, once that is live. So I have a Facebook group. Um, I do have a page, but then Instagram is where I pretty much post everything. I do have a Twitter uh, account that I think I've posted to twice. Um, so I definitely yeah. need to step that up and learn how to do that. Um, and then my story is also been shared on Diet Doctor um, in two ways. So they have an, an article um, about low carb and keto during pregnancy, and then they kind of have an overall uh, feature on just my story as well. So if you're wanting to read that or you're wanting to take any information, um, there's another physician who was quoted in that article talking about low carb for fertility and now how you know he thinks it's very beneficial. So um, you can also find me there. And I link to that on my Instagram if you want to read that on dietdoctor.com. Awesome. I will absolutely link out to that too. I feel like, I feel like, like I said in the beginning, your story is incredibly relevant to many, many people. And I mm -hmm. think you're truly on the frontier here as it relates to keto and pregnancy and beyond. So keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Kylan. I really enjoyed having you on here. I appreciate it.